The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. So I feel like half of this room is probably going, what is this talk going to be about? And the other half of the room might be um, expecting something you know, about Foucault or you know, Chomsky or something. But um, I'm not going to do that. I was actually <clears throat> going to begin with Marx, because I figured I would play to my crowd. Um, <laughs> and Marx, Marx said, it is the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but it is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. And I thought that that was a good foundation um, for the argument that um, I'm going to try to lay out for you today, um, because it's really one of his defining and I think most profound uh, insights. Um, really, it's simply saying that it's not, um, it's not what we think that determines our reality but our reality that actually determines um, what and, and how um, we think. Now, this was a controversial uh, thing to say in his era, uh, and it remains actually a controversial uh, thing to say today. But really, in the starkest terms, um, when you think about it, um, when you're starving, uh, when, when food is lacking, uh, this material reality um, governs everything uh, about your world uh, and certainly about your conscious thought. And in other words, you cannot think yourself out of starvation. Um, now, I also picked this particular phrase because people may or may not have noticed that the language that he uses um, is very much a reflection uh, of his era, right? He says men, uh, and he means everybody, you know, he means human beings. Um, but that was the way uh, that people talked then. Um, and Marx, like he's pointing out, uh, was a reflection uh, of his own social existence. Um, so it's kind of meta, you know, if you think about it. Um, you know, if you were here today, I would say, you know, maybe say human beings or something like that. Um, uh, but I'm not, and I'm not going to, you know, stand up here and say that he was infallible and he never said anything sexist and da da da, da you know, because I don't think that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's not true, uh, and, uh, you know, Marx, like the rest of us, uh, was full of flaws um, and, and was human or whatever, but he had some pretty important things to say, and hopefully that particular thing doesn't get lost on people, because <clears throat> I think it's actually this premise that gets obscured, if not um, consciously refuted in, in any of the discussions uh, about language or words, really, which are really symbols or representations of things um, and ideas, right, or, or a conscious thought. And I'm also going to begin uh, with a few assumptions, uh, uh, which I hope are safe to do, that, that, that there is large agreement in this room about a whole number uh, of words of our era, you know, that have a very clear meaning um, and little or no ambiguity. Um, and I'm also going to assume that, you know, everybody in here is a decent human being um, and, uh, you know, refers to people the way that they want to be referred to. Um, and I'm going to assume that there are probably some words and phrases or whatever that we're, you know, not in agreement about um, or whatever. And that's fine. In all honesty, I have a whole list of words um, on the left lexicon that I just wish people would stop saying. But I'm, you know, I'm not, we can talk about that afterwards um, and, you know, it's fine. Um, 
But this is also going to be one of those talks where I think I have to clarify what I'm not saying. Um, and I am not saying that words don't matter um, and that words have no meaning um, or carry any weight, uh, historical or otherwise. Not only would I find this an absurd and impossible argument um, to make, but it has absolutely nothing to do with materialism um, or Marxism. Um, and it entirely negates uh, the whole point um, of, of Marx's statement that I started out with. Of course, words matter. They reflect our reality and they provide insight into our history. Um, but the discussion that I think is increasingly common on the left about language and words does a couple of things that I think deserve some close examination and, and criticism. One is that um, it blurs, if not elides, the, the distinction between actual oppression and the representation of oppression, or perceived also representations of oppression. Um, and two, um, it involves a significant, um, or at least very vocal, uh, section of left activists arguing and operating as if the primary struggle is one against language. Uh, something I think can be distorting at best and debilitating at worst, and I think as Marx might say, reflects the reality faced by the left today. A low level of struggle, the decline of the labor movement, um, the victory and the impact of neoliberal policies, really the legacy of the de defeats um, of the past. So there was an article um, that uh, a friend pointed out to me um, uh, on a blog called uh, Public Autonomy, written by somebody named Steve Darcy. I don't know who he is, um, but he does something interesting and he points um, he points out um, you know, the differences between the sort of left lingo that you might hear in uh, an activist meeting in the, in the 60s or 70s versus the stuff that you would hear um, today. And he's like, w if, if you took an activist from then and put them in a meeting today, would they understand like what anybody was talking about? Um, and so he, he, he literally has like two columns um, of, their, of the lingo of the, what he calls the new left, right? Um, 60s and 70s, and then the post new left. Um, and it's kind of fascinating, so I wanted to share it um, with you. Um, so new left vocabulary, and he's not, by the way, he's not saying that nobody uses these words anymore, but they've largely sort of replaced um, the words uh, that we use today. So new left, oppression. Um, and I'm not going to read all the uh, definitions, but some of it. A pattern of persistent and systematic disadvantage imposed on large groups of people in many domains of social life. Post-New Left, privilege. A set of unearned benefits that some individuals enjoy and others are denied in their everyday lives. Um, exploitation, a feature of economic systems, including capitalism, in which unpaid labor is extracted from working people. Classism. An attitude of scorn, condensation, or disrespect towards persons of low income, etc. Um, alliances, the confluence and struggle of large-scale social forces. Being an ally. A sincere commitment on the part of a privileged individual to offer ongoing support to individuals. Um, consciousness raising. A process of popular political education in which learners are viewed as already having an implicit grasp of critical insights about injustice calling out, an approach to challenging folks who show a lack of insight or concern about issues of privilege, etc. Solidarity, a stance within and between social movements of treating injuries to one as if they were injuries to all and resisting them in common as matters of shared priority rather than just the concern of only those under attack. Positionality, 
A practice of acknowledging the specificity of one's social position, especially one's access to privilege, which may make one incapable of understanding or speaking authoritatively about the way others are impacted. The people, folks, um, a term that refers to groups of people in the plural without suggesting that they compromise a singular totality. And then there's liberation, uh, a term used to refer to ultimate victory and struggles against systems of oppression and safe space, um, the attempt to create occasions or locations wherein the adverse effects of privilege on marginalized people are minimized um, in everyday interpersonal interactions. Now, you know, just to be clear, um, the author uh, of the piece isn't making like an all or nothing argument about some proverbial, you know, return to the good old days and that, you know, everything was better then and, you know, everything is terrible now. For example, he notes um, that we've gained, um, you know, an important recognition of and sensitivity to, <laughs> for example, you know, things like sexism and homophobia, um, you know, and other non-gender conforming sexualities uh, that demonstrate a, lear a learning process, you know, that we got actually from, uh, the, from, the, from the new left. Um, and he says that's a clear step forward, that's a gain. You know, because if you were to do the opposite and plop somebody from today into some of those meetings, um, you know, particularly at a, at a, at a certain time, they, they might be shocked at some of the stuff that they hear. You know, it's a, it's a good thing that it's not okay to go to a left me uh, meeting um, and hear homophobic or sexist language um, by, you know, other comrades. Um, and he's very clear about that. But the point that he's making um, is that the language uh, that we use or use can tell us a lot about our political moment. And he says that there's three shifts um, that, that have occurred. One, a shift in priorities from ultimate victory to challenging everyday impacts. Two, a shift of focus from analyzing system dynamics to analyzing interpersonal dynamics. And three, a shift in emphasis from commonality among social groups to specificity. Um, and I think, you know, he makes a really important point uh, about what he thinks have been lost. And I'm going to read um, this quote. He says, the series of shifts from the old vocabulary to the new one has entailed certain losses. In particular, the relative de-emphasizing of system level causation in favor of a new emphasis on the importance of individual action or inaction tends to weaken the integration of everyday left discourse with the theoretical analysis of systems like capitalism and colonialism. It's true that in exchange we have a vocabulary that better enables us to focus on class privilege and settler privilege, but if we're to defeat colonialism and capitalism, we cannot do so one person at a time or one interaction or relationship at a time. The systems themselves have to be named, understood, attacked, and overthrown. This issue is obviously closely connected to the, to the loss of focus on liberation. A liberation focus and a system focus share a common understanding that the purpose of the left is to defeat exploitation and oppression. Challenging immediate impacts is important, but it's not enough. It's necessary, but by no means sufficient. Moreover, the way we challenge everyday impacts should be informed by our understanding that they're not produced simply by individual actions, but by the operation of large-scale systems. Now, I think that that's um, an important point and that the focus on individual versus system-level change reflects a lowering of political sites in terms of what we should be fighting for. 
which is full liberation. That's, that's what we were talking about in the 60s and 70s, and that's what we should be talking about now. Now, it's true that at that time, um, full liberation felt more like it was on the horizon um, uh, than it does today, and that's an important difference, and I'll come back to that. But what it means is that the discussions about, for example, political strategy or political analysis get replaced um, by this sort of easier discussion um, about words and what are the correct words that we use. And in fact, you know, the discussion focused on what he calls everyday impacts, I think is really the left sort of telling each other how to talk to each other. Um, and in the process, the, the idea of impact even gets turned into something bigger, which is power. Um, what seems to be taken as a given today is the notion that words alone have power. Um, this piece, for example, um, on uh, a blog called Everyday Feminism, titled 10 Questions About Why Ableist Language Matters Answered, says, I am always very curious about those who believe that words are only words, as though they do not have tremendous power. Those of us who use words understand the world through them. We use words to construct frameworks with which we understand experience. Um, now, I think this actually obscures the point that I began with. Um, and Teresa Ebert, um, who wrote a piece refuting uh, post-structuralist, post post-structuralist uh, post feminism says, the fact that we understand reality through language does not mean that reality is made by language. Um, so it's certainly true that words can have an impact, right? And we should certainly you know, try to use words that are accurate, uh, number one, um, and that are not insensitive, because if we don't do that, then people will be confused about what we're saying, will, or miss our point, um, or think we're an asshole, you know, or, or all three of those things. Um, but saying words have tremendous power, I think, is inaccurate, because the implication is that words have an independent power and that they exist kind of out there somewhere, um, and, are, um, you know, and they exert this immutable power just by their mere utterance. Um, but words are given meaning by context. Um, and let's begin with what I think is sort of a benign um, example. Um, now, if I were to say uh, to you, um, we're going to have to let you go. When I say that here today, it doesn't mean anything. Um, it sounds kind of weird. Why would she be saying this? Um, they're not particularly um, offensive um, or anything like that. Now, but you change the context, right? And when your employer says those words to you, well, they do mean something. Um, and for those of you who have heard those words, it feels like a punch in the gut, right? Because of what happens because of those words, right? Um, a loss of income and all of the things that that entails, if you have children and a family, even more so. Um, let's be clear, however, um, you know, as awful as that they, those words may sound, that's not what has power in that situation. Your employer does. Um, now, if you turn around, right, and out of frustration um, and anger, call your employer the B word, after that happens, which is, by the way, a word that I don't use um, and I don't like. Um, does that word have power in that situation in any meaningful sense? Um, I would say that in that context, the answer is no. Um, I think that we should understand power as a social relationship dictated by the terms of capitalism. It depends on the words and it depends on who's saying them. All the way from your boss to the cops to the president, their words are given meaning by their power 
i.e. their ability to shape your material reality. Um, words alone don't have power, even the worst of them. Words that are representations, real representations of oppression, are given meaning, not power, only by the fact of inequality, lower wages, higher unemployment, substandard housing, exclusion from good educational facilities and opportunities, physical brutality, and so on. People might remember, um, for example, in March, um, there was that disgusting racist video that surfaced of these white frat boys on a bus um, singing that song, you know, some chant that they learned from back in the day that apparently came from the antebellum South, by the way, um, that said there will never be an N-word in SAE. Uh, and it made reference to lynching black men um, in that song. So, you know, and this was made viral, by the way, by the black student organization um, on that campus. And, um, you know, it's really sort of remarkable in this country that you can't pass two days without some national event that exposes like the depths of racism um, in this country. Um, and, and then after something like that happened, I mean, and this was the case here too, it took exactly one day for the media pundits, you know, I think it was Morning Joe or something like that, um, who then turned around and guess whose fault he said that that was. Um, it's black people's fault. You know why? Because they say it too. You know, Waka Flocka says it. Um, and they say it in rap music. Um, you know, and so what ended up happening is a couple of people got expelled, um, uh, a couple of people um, were suspended, and then they were assigned sensitivity um, training. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think I have to make the case to anyone in this room that it is different when white racist flat, frat boys are saying the word um, than when it's um, said in, in, in rap songs or whatever. Um, and I think not distinguishing between those two things actually obscures the meaning of the word itself. Words don't exist out in the ether once they've been invaded, in, invented and acquire some immutable meaning. They develop out of something real, and in the case of the N-word, that's slavery. And it continues to have meaning today, not just because of the history of slavery, but because of the persistence of racism, slavery's legacy. Words can very much be a representation of oppression, but words alone are not oppression itself. If that weren't the case, then we'd have to agree with Morning Joe um, and the reactionary pundits on this one that it doesn't matter whether it's Waka Flocka or racist white frat boys saying that word. Now, um, obviously it's a good thing, I don't want to be misunderstood, um, it's a good thing that it is no longer acceptable for white people to say the N-word uh, in this country. But it's certainly noteworthy that making a word unacceptable is not the same um, as eliminating it, or more accurately, um, eliminating its meaning. Why? Because racist oppression, the reality of inequality, is what fuels racist language. What gives it meaning, right? That's why it's different when white people say it. There is really a cart and a horse relationship here. Racist oppression is the horse, and racist language is the cart. The two can be separated, but the horse can continue to move without the cart, not the other way around. And I think that this analogy is made painfully evident by Michelle Alexander, um, really everywhere in this book, um, which I always return to, The New Jim Crow. Um, I'm sure it's in the Haymarket Room, and if you haven't read it, you should really buy it. 
Um, but what is colorblindness, which is what she's going through, if not the elimination or the supposed elimination of explicit racial bias? Um, now, granted, there are, you know, people have different definitions of what explicit means um, in the judicial system. Um, but nonetheless, part of what fits, fits into the legal definition of explicit racial bias is racist language. But it turns out that you can get rid of racist language without getting rid of racism at all. Um, and Alexandra points this out in her discussion um, of a 1987 Supreme Court ruling called Kemp um, versus McCleskey. And I'm just gonna kind of go through the facts because I think it's important to illustrate this point. But basically, um, the Supreme Court ruled that racial bias in sentencing, even if shown through credible statistical evidence, could not be challenged under the 14th Amendment in the absence of clear evidence of conscious discriminatory intent. So here's the story of Warren McCleskey. Warren McCleskey was a black man facing the death penalty for killing a white police officer during an armed robbery in Georgia. Represented by the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, McCleskey challenged his death sentence on the grounds that, Georgia, that the Georgia death penalty scheme was infected with racial bias and thus violated the 14th and 18th Amendments. In support of his claim, he offered an exhaustive study of more than 2,000 murder cases in Georgia. The case was known as the Baldus Study, named after Professor David Baldus, who was its lead author. The study found that defendants charged with killing white victims received the death penalty 11 times more often than defendants charged with killing black victims. Georgia prosecutors seemed largely to blame for the disparity. They sought the death penalty in 70% of cases involving black defendants and white victims, but only 19% of cases involving white defendants and black victims. Baldus and his colleagues subjected the raw data to highly sophisticated statistical analysis to see if non-racial factors might explain the disparities. Yet even after accounting for 35 non-racial variables, the researchers found that defendants charged with killing white victims were 4.3 times more likely to receive a death sentence than defendants charged with killing blacks. Black defendants, like McCleskey, who killed white victims, had the highest chance of being sentenced to death in Georgia. Um, and she says the statistical evidence of discrimination that Baldus had developed was the strongest ever presented to a court regarding race and criminal sentencing. If McCleskey's evidence was not enough to prove discrimination in the absence of some kind of racist utterance, what would be? Um, and by a one vote margin, uh, the Supreme Court rejected uh, McCleskey's claims um, and said that he couldn't prove um, that the prosecutor in his particular case had shown um, any explicit racial bi uh, bias. And it, it had implications, by the way, for the um, crack cocaine versus powder cocaine um, rules that we know about. And she says, in the years following McCleskey, lower courts consistently rejected claims of race discrimination in the criminal justice system, finding that gross racial disparities do not merit strict scrutiny in the absence of evidence of explicit race discrimination, the very evidence unavailable in the era of colorblindness. So I think that's an important um, point um, to make because oppression isn't just the rep representation of, of an idea, it's an action. Um, and you know, it wasn't necessary to use racist language to strap 
Warren McCleskey to the electric chair and kill him, which is what happened to him three years later in 1991. Um, and by the way, the evidence against uh, Warren McCleskey uh, was a confession, not by him, but by a jailhouse snitch that turned out to be a plant from the Atlanta Police Department. Um, so you have to think about those 70% of cases and how many other Warren McCleskeys out there um, were electrocuted, not because of racist language. Um, I think activists, the point I'm trying to make um, is I think activists spend more of their efforts today going after that cart um, because they've lost sight of the horse and because it's admittedly a much less daunting task, isn't it? Um, the hyper-focus on language, um, I think, has severely narrowed the discussion to one that seems to be only about what activists say to each other, what language the most radical among us know and use, rather than about a left that sees itself in opposition not to each other and the words that we use, but to the state that killed Warren McCleskey, the ones imposing real oppression. Um, I think another example of this phenomenon is a piece making the rounds on Facebook called Guys Can We Stop Calling Everyone Guys Already. Um, the author who considers herself a very serious feminist, which by the way I don't doubt um, at all, um, writes a piece trying to figure out how we can employ language that is less male-centric. Um, and she goes through you know, how hard it is and just how, how many words seem to be um, centered around uh, you know, more male as sort of the normal thing. Um, and while the piece makes reference to the fact um, that there is some non-gendered um, language use, um, she, she speaks specifically about uh, the non-gender y'all in the South um, and sort of laments that she's not able to use it um, because she's from Boston. Um, <laughs> um, but, but what she doesn't seem to examine anywhere in the piece is whether or not women are per perceived as more equal in the South due to the use of the word y'all. Because <laughs> um, it would seem to me, by the way, the answer is no. Um, it would seem to me that that's the question that you're trying to answer, is it not? Um, does changing one's language do anything to change the material reality? Um, I think it's very telling um, that this question isn't even examined in there. Um, and she then concludes with what I think is a depressingly low level of expectations for what we should be fighting for. She says, it's clear language can be both a force of oppression and revolution, but overhauling the patriarchal language systems probably isn't a realistic endeavor. Limiting the use of objectively sexist generics, on the other hand, is. Being more thoughtful with our words requires only a modicum of concentrated effort and, in fact, might be one of the easiest things we could do to further goals of respect and equality for guys, gals, and everyone in between. Now, you know, leaving aside the example that I just gave of Michelle Alexander, um, that that's actually doesn't even, there's no evidence um, that that's the case. Um, you know, it's, again, just, that we, we have to be thinking much bigger um, than something like that. Um, and I think this reality, uh, this really underlines the point that um, is made by that, that first blogger uh, that I talked about um, when, he, when, he, when he discusses the shift from the new left to the post-new left. He says, the older vocabulary, vocabulary looked at capitalism, racism, and sexism, for example, as social systems or institutions that could and probably would be defeated once and for all in the foreseeable future. Accordingly, activists of that era 
defined and described their movements as struggles for socialism, black liberation, women's liberation. By contrast, the new vocabulary tends to suspend judgment on without denying the prospects for ultimate victory and to focus its attention on challenging everyday impacts of capitalism, racialization, and gender in the here and now. The movements of the 60s, um, I think we have to say, were much bigger. Um, you, had, you still had a fighting labor movement. Um, you know, we were stronger then. Today, the left is much smaller. I think we, can, we should say it's tiny. Um, it's, it's very small, and there's kind of no way to overstate that. How many people are in this country, right? 320 million people in this country. How many people do you think are on the anti-capitalist left in this country? 3,000? 5,000? You know, um, I think that's that's the reality that we face. We're smaller and we're weaker and we have to deal, and I, this is an international question, by the way, with the defeats of those who came before us and the successes um, of our enemies um, of capital. The conditions today are extremely difficult, but that does not mean that people aren't angry. Um, if you look around and that's the conclusion that you're drawing, you're missing something major, um, and in fact, I think that that explains the pattern of struggle that we've seen. You know, that en enormous bursts on the one hand, that it seemed like everybody is pissed off and want to do something, that then go away. Why? why? Why is that happening? Is it because people stop being angry? Is it because the ruling class actually got nicer? No. It's that there, we haven't yet been able to build a sustained organization, you know, connected to the labor movement or, you know, and then the whole question of the weakness of the labor movement is another question, um, that can translate into us challenging power. Um, you know, you think about the civil rights movement, you know, think about the black power movement. People, they had to be responded to. They were terrified of Martin Luther King Jr. They were terrified um, of, of Huey Newton. There was a, that was a different moment. We were able to leverage power in a way that we just haven't been able to come back to. Um, those, I think, are tough political questions that we need to have to need to answer and have a conversation about. Um, and by the way, I don't have the answers um, to all of those tough questions. Um, but I think we need to be having that conversation. Um, and uh, you know, the left, as tiny as it is, um, thank you, uh, is talking. You know continues to talk to itself, because I think, um, whether it's conscious or not, people have given up on the idea that we can ever be big again um, and have influence and that we can challenge power in the way that we did before, that we have before, that we can rebuild something um, that can actually fight them. Instead, a number of very good activists spend a lot of time thinking about quote-unquote inclusive language, um, for example, which, by the way, I think ends up being its opposite. Um, you know, which is, it's exclusive. Um, you know, nobody else is, nobody else thinks that. Nobody else is talking like that. People say guys all the time, um, and they don't mean anything by it. I mean, they mean what, exactly what they think they mean, <laughs> which is everybody. Um, you know, go to a picket line, or, you know, come sell a socialist worker on a tabling with us and talk to people, and they're going to say things like that. Um, you know, and that's who I think the left needs to be talking to. Um, you know, so uh, these discussions, I think, end up being very insular between a small number of people and they just don't affect anything. Now, I don't know if he's here today, but I was talking to uh, Boots Riley last night and he reminded me 
um, that during you know, the Occupy movement, which by the way was a moment where you could actually see the potential for having something much bigger, to, uh, having a much bigger left. Um, but when, when the Occupy movement came up against some of its limitations, the debate in some Occupy circles, and it was true in mine, and it was apparently true in Oakland, was over the word Occupy. Um, discussions went on for weeks about whether or not we should call ourselves Occupy anymore because don't you know about imperialism and don't you know that the police are occupying neighborhoods, etc. You know, and it's like nobody thinks that's what Occupy I mean, talk to people on it. Nobody thinks that. This is a discussion between a very small group of people. Now, if the argument is that people need to think through what they're putting in writing and in publications or on flyers, you know, et cetera, because we don't want, you know, to make people feel unwelcome, you know, I agree 100% that we should have, you know, discussions about those things. I think it's a mistake that if we, that we attribute, you know, small numbers or small turnouts to a meeting on the use of, of wrong language. I think that that's actually evading some more important political questions. And frankly, I think there's a dynamic to this hyper-focus on language that turns into people making moral judgments um, that are largely misguided about what people's meanings and intentions are. And it can lead to poisonous atmospheres, frankly, in organizing and activist circles where people are judged entirely by whether or not they've learned all the right left lingo. And people, you know, it, feel, it can feel like people are just waiting to jump down someone's throat if they say the wrong word. And it's also used in the negative, too. If you didn't mention X, Y, or Z, um, then you know, you're silencing um, somebody's uh, um, oppression um, or whatever. Now, what's ironic, uh, and, and you know, that's ironic because I actually think that the, that, that is actually what causes people not to want to speak um, because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Um, and then the people who know all the right lingo are the only ones that have the right to speak. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't work. And I think this insular, in-circle type of atmosphere is no way to grow the left. And it just becomes a breeding ground for more radical than thou faux politics, you know, which have nothing to do with politics. That's what faux means. Um, <laughs> instead, instead of discussions about how to win anything um, or why we've won something. Um, you know, um, the discussion is about who can sound the most radical, um, again, which isn't really a discussion about anything at all. Um, and then when we do win, which is so rare, the discussion quickly turns into how little the victory actually matters, and if you think it did, well, you're not radical enough, and, you know, obviously, you know what I'm referring to. Um, the, you know, the victory of gave it, it just, just to, you know, as an example, it was like, my Facebook feed was like, on the one hand, you know, some, some of my comrades and just like random high school friends and ex-coworkers and whatever that were like thrilled and happy and you know and people that don't usually talk about political things and were excited about something um, and then you know uh, sections that I had worked with um, of the left in the past where literally one person wrote gay marriage yawn you know and you're just kind of like I'm sorry, you're disconnected from the happiness of regular people. That's a problem. That, that, we, we, that's not what the left needs to be doing. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I won't harp on and on about it, but I, it is about you know, a lowering of political um, sites. Um, I think what the left, um, you know, I, I've, I've alluded to what I think 
the left needs to be talking about. It also needs to try to make itself more appealing and more inclusive. Um, you know, not make people feel like they have no place in it. Um, I think this hyper-focus on language, um, really part of that whole, you know, it's not just language, there's a whole sort of one-upmanship and more radical than thou kind of politics, um, you know, political culture that's dominating um, on the left right now. And not only does it not bring us anywhere closer to full liberation, which I still think should be the goal, I think in, in practical ways it pulls us further away from that goal. Um, and I look forward to the discussion. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.